Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues we discuss through the various episodes. And if you're not new to the podcast, please do help spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and consider posting a review or a plug on social media. And of course, you can also find links to all the materials discussed in all the episodes, including links to the impressive list of great reading recommendations that have been made by all of our guests. This is a special episode to discuss the war in Ukraine, much like our special episode in the summer of 2021 to discuss the conflict in Gaza. Unlike the usual format of one guest discussing some aspect of their own scholarship, today we have a panel of scholars to dig into some of the particular issues relating to the conflict. They'll be well known to uh, all of those working in the field, so I will say little about their background and achievements. Links to their bios will, of course, be on the website. But we have Professor Iliav Lieblik from the University of Tel Aviv in Israel, Professor Marko Milanovic from the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom, and Professor Ingrid Wirth of Vanderbilt University Law School in the United States. Our discussion focuses on the USAD Bellum regime and the collective security system. We'll leave the myriad issues of IHL for another episode to be recorded soon. And in particular, we try to explore what the war means for the USAID Bellum regime and the collective security system, and specifically how we should be thinking about the future health of these aspects of the international legal order. I won't say much more than that by way of introduction, as there is a great deal of food for thought here, and I want to let you dive right in as we get into the thick of it right off the mark. So with that, I bring you our first panel on the Ukraine conflict. Well, Ingrid, Marco, Iliad, thank you so much uh, for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you in particular for being here on a Saturday morning and making time for this. I should note perhaps that we're speaking on Saturday, March 5th, just over a week after the reinvasion of Ukraine. Things are moving so quickly that it's worth marking where we are in the timeline, uh, because by the time we get this out, things will have changed yet again. But perhaps before we dive in, I could just ask, where are each of you and where are you witnessing the war from? Well, I am, I'm sort of a nomadically uh, itinerant between Nottingham and Belgrade. So I'm in Belgrade now, which sort of has a nice little uh, twang to it in terms of, you know, you said bellum and you said bellow issues. So. Let's hope that there's no foreshadowing <laughs> there. Ingrid, where, where are you? In Nashville, Tennessee. And Iliev? I'm in Tel Aviv, Israel. So like Marco, I'm very interested in looking at these dynamics that uh, unfortunately I know pretty well from my own region. So, all right. So I can never tell you know, Twitter where you guys are in the world at any given time. So there are already so many issues implicated for many areas of international law and even within virtually all areas of the laws of war writ large. But I thought we'd try to focus our attention today on some of the more important issues involving USAID Bellum and the collective security system. And in particular, to at least begin the conversation about what this war means for the USAID Bellum regime and the collective security system. Are we to consider them irrevocably broken, or how can we think about restoring and perhaps reforming and strengthening these regimes after this war is over? So I don't think we need to spend much time or any time at all really discussing or analyzing the legal justifications that Russia has advanced to legitimize its use of force. There's virtually universal agreement outside of the Kremlin that this invasion is a violation of Article 2.4 and an act of aggression. 
But there is some disagreement that seems to be heating up over the extent to which past Western violations of Article 2.4 have any relevance to this situation, whether such putative violations and the strained legal justifications, such as the American and British rationales advanced to justify the invasion of Iraq in 2003, helped to weaken the Yusad Balam regime in some way that is relevant to the current situation, that such past Western action somehow weakened the legal constraints on this kind of use of force, and that we need to acknowledge that as we think about how to restore or reform the system going forward. Now, Marco, both you and Nico Kreish in recent essays and usual talk suggested that these past actions and arguments are relevant to the current situation, and it's important to acknowledge them. Perhaps we can start with that issue and begin with you. What's your argument on So my argument would be sort of twofold. There are some, in some respects, the past misconduct of other states is completely, utterly irrelevant to assessing the legality and morality of what Russia is doing now. But in others, it is very much relevant. Okay. So coming to the first point, the fact that other states have broken the use at Bellum, the prohibition of the use of force on multiple occasions and or have made, you know, very spurious legal arguments in doing so does not in any way justify Russia in doing the same thing or doing a worse thing. Now, it's actually hard for me to sort of tell which is worse. The U.S. invasion of Iraq, in some respects, in many respects, is still way worse than what Russia is doing. We should not forget that hundreds of thousands of people died in Iraq. We're nowhere near that yet in Ukraine. And God help us, may we, know, we never reach that point. Yeah. So the fact that somehow the U.S. and the U.K. had legalistically a nicer argument, you know, something that would pass the laugh test in justifying their unilateral use of force against Iraq doesn't mean their aggression against Iraq was any better or any less bad, if you see what I mean. But anyway, the fact that the U.S., et cetera, et cetera, broke international law on multiple occasions does not in any way justify Russia doing what it's doing. On the other hand, they did weaken the use of Bellum regime. There's just no way to get around that. And when you see all these Western states, in particular, for example, making very expansive interpretations of the right to self-defense in international law, you know, whether it's an issue of anticipation or preemptive, preventive, whatever you call it, self-defense, or issues of non-state actors, and that goes on and on, constantly sort of, you know, flexing the boundaries of self-defense, then yeah, when you see Russia doing something similar, that should not come as a surprise. And so what I think those of us who live in Western states, those you know, that care about the rule of law, probably more, much more than Russia does, what we really need to draw a lesson from, from this is that we need to discipline our states, our politicians, and make it less likely for them to do something similar in the future. I remain horrified, for example, that people like George W. Bush or Tony Blair remain respectable members of society. Let me put it this way. And I, it's very hard to condemn Vladimir Putin the way we're condemning him when Blair and Bush are sort of doing whatever they want with no punishment at all. You see what I mean? So in that, those two ways, I think the, you know, it does matter that international law has been broken in the past. Yeliev, do you, have, you want to weigh in on this? Do you have thoughts? Yeah, I think it's possible to argue, you know, that past violations or abuses of, of law weaken the regime. But I think we also have to put this in, you know, wider historical context. And it's certainly true that the USSR advanced similar doctrines Right? namely the false recognition of entities and then relying on their consent to invade other uh, countries, allegations of previous external intervention as a basis to claim that state or government is, is, is not legitimate as early as in 1956, right? So it's clear that past violations by Western or other states make it easier for, the, for Russia to make nowadays what about a claim of 
hey, you did this also, so just, you know, shut up. But I would be careful to say, you know, that there is a kind of causal relation between past violations and now the ability of Russia to make such arguments because it has its own history of, of expansive or, or abusive interpretation of abuse at Bellum. I do agree in terms of law and this sh should not be, you know, cannot be repeated enough that, you know, past violations do not make this violation right. And there's a thin line between pointing this, you know, past violations and making this kind of deflective what about his claim. And so, so this is you know, something when we look at Putin's argument, we have to point out. And importantly, and I think, you know, we focused a lot about, you know, past violations of some Western states, but not all those countering Russia's arguments nowadays were involved in these previous violations. So to focus on, you know, previous violators, it's also a bit unfair, right? It's not, you know, these are not the entire, all of the actors playing right now. And last about, you know, the comparisons, I don't want to get into comparison between this act and previous violations, but I think as a point of departure, you know, it's well accepted in law. The, the two or more conduct can violate the, set, the same rule, but still have relevant de different degrees of wrongfulness. And I think this should be the basis of our discussion. So, so and I think that the, also Monica Kimi made a similar point on Twitter. Uh, so maybe we can discuss this later on. It's an entire other argument. <laughs> yeah, and I think that your your last point does point to Monica Hakimi's thread just last night. And so again, speaking of fast moving developments. But before I come to Monica's argument, which I think we can unpack a little bit in the context of this broader argument, Ingrid, I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on Marco's initial point. Yeah, perhaps disappointingly, I don't disagree with it. I think we all agree that past violations have weakened the regime and past violations are no legal justification. And, and so I agree with both of the previous speakers. I, I also agree with the focus on the war in Iraq. It's, it's just hard to look at, at that war as anything other than an absolutely horrific violation of, of international law. And I'll add, you know, it is, is very interesting the extent to which Vladimir Putin is, has consistently framed his interventions absolutely in the language of international law. He cites these prior interventions. He talks about the U.S. He's specific, right? He talks about the United States presentation to the U.N. Security Council, right, in which the United States said that we were invading Iraq as a matter of self-defense because weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, I think that's rhetorically powerful. And it, it, I mean, it points to, to two things. I, I think it does suggest that these prior regimes are weakening the system. And it, you know, it points also to the remaining strength of the system, at least rhetorically, right? He's very eager and quite precise in discussing. It's not just a general discussion of prior events, right? He's very specific in in, in, in terms of what happened mm -hmm. and how it is comparable to the actions that he's taken. And, and that suggests that this international legal regime continues to have a lot of rhetorical and political force, which um, I think is, is, is very important. So I think it just highlights how significant our conversation is and how significant it is um, that we think really hard about these issues as international lawyers going forward. So I, I think that last point is really interesting because I think there have been points made in the blogosphere about the, the manner in which Putin has tried to advance these legal justifications. And as you say, as with great specificity, referred back to previous justifications made by the United States and other Western countries. And I guess on the one hand, you know, some would say, well, this is so cynical. It is so implausible. It, it's a, so, almost a form of lawfare and, and it's an exploitation of law in a manner that reveals that international law has no normative power. And others would say, well, no, actually, this is precisely 
within the scope of the ICJ's formulation in Nicaragua that even when countries violate international law, they try to justify it in international law terms, which reveals the normative power of international law, even in the moment of violation, which I think, Ingrid, was, is really sort of the point that you were just getting to. So where do we stand on this? Is the, the fact that Putin and Russia are going to the lengths that they are in trying to provide legal justification and speaking in, in the language of international law and trying to justify its action, is this an indication that international law is alive and well and the USAID Bellum regime still does have some normative power? Or is this an indication that the, you know, the USAID Bellum regime is in tatters and, and now it's just being exploited and used in the most cynical way? I don't think the two points are necessarily exclusive. You can use the law cynically, yet still thereby somehow validate its normative power. So again, if you look at the US-UK legal memoranda justifying the invasion of Iraq, were they any less cynical and instrumentalist? Right. You know, I doubt it. Yeah. But still, you know, working within that language validates that entire framework. And actually, this whole episode does tell us, you know, that even in the sort of face of naked aggression, states are unable to say openly, well, we're going to invade the state because it's in our interest to do so, and that's it, and you can't stop us, right? That type of brute force language is simply not acceptable, even when brute force is what's being used. Yeah, I would like to follow up, Marco, and I agree with you completely, and I think really an argument can be cynical, but it's still structured as a legal argument, and as we return again to Monica the TV, who appears here. I almost called her last night and said, Monica, you got to come on the podcast more. Okay. So, yeah, she argued in her uh, great article, Why Should We Care About International Law? You know, that you, once you make a legal argument, you appeal to authority, right? When you appeal to some type of authority, you invite others to contest this authority, right? So I think when Putin makes these legal arguments, he's really setting, you know, the stage, not intentionally, right? But for us to contest these arguments through legal language and kind of frames little possible discussion, right? Because otherwise, if the, if the language would have not been legal, we would sit here and discuss historical narratives of whether Ukraine was always a country or not. And, you know, whether it was fair that Khrushchev transferred Crimea to, to Ukraine or whatever. So this kind of gives us the, the point of departure that I don't think we can do without, you know, without completely disintegrating. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I just want to add, you know, one of the a point of distinction with the Iraq war, and I, I completely agree the extent to which the justifications appeared cynical and, and pretextual. It is interesting to think about the difference between conquering territory and reabsorbing it into your state. And and again, this is not to morally justify what the United States did in, at all in Iraq. It's just to think about how international law is functioning here. And, you know, we might look back at Crimea. So to think about Crimea, that violated international law. Absolutely. That was that was a you know a severe violation of international law. Same Article 2-4, same secession arguments advanced. And I don't think Europe responded. And you know, looking back, you know, I think the response to that was much more muted than we might expect. And it goes in part to Ilya's point. So, you know, we are thinking about the norms a little bit differently. At least I think that's the way the world what the world's reaction looks like when a large part of Crimea, you know, is of Russian heritage and but not insignificant 
fraction of people in Crimea probably actually wanted to be part of Russia. And I, you know, I'm not giving credence to the, the fake elections and so on, but I, I'm just saying that's a, that's a relevant fact. And I, I think we can look back and think that, you know, wow, Europe was pretty muted actually, as part of Ukraine was absorbed into Russia. And so I just throw that out there first as a potential distinction between what happened in Iraq and also another reason that's really consistent with what Ilyev said about maybe how these norms are loosening and why. And in that narrative, maybe Putin's mistake here was going past the eastern provinces and pushing over into western Ukraine. And it's very interesting to think what would the international reaction have been if he had stopped at the two breakaway provinces. So those are additional ways, I think, in which the norm is in flux and under stress and informed by actual facts in the world. Yeah, I think we can circle back to Crimea in 2014 a little later and, and sort of looking at it now in retrospect in, in sort of through the lens of Munich, wondering maybe the reaction to Crimea was not sufficiently powerful. And I do think that you're quite right that we tend to think that the war in Iraq may have been different or distinguishable by virtue of the intention, the motives, that it was not about territorial conquest in the way that this war is, and that somehow should make some difference. And certainly, I think that nobody here, I think, is making sort of moral equivalency arguments. But this brings us then to Monica's Twitter thread last night, in which she actually argues that you cannot equate the, the invasion of Iraq, even with the invasion of Ukraine, in legal terms, just strictly in terms of, of the violation of Article 2.4. And I think that this is really an interesting argument. You know, I think this is sort of a reflection of a, a classic New Haven School process theory of international law perspective, that while Iraq and Ukraine were in formalistic terms, in black letter law terms, a violation of Article 2.4, that the process and legal argument surrounding the invasion of Iraq, and particularly within the UN Security Council, was very different and that the circumstances of that process have to be understood as informing the social construct of the law and in ways that this should influence how we judge the nature of the alleged violation itself. And now, as some of the responses on Twitter reflect, the perspective from the global south is not necessarily going to see that process as being all that different or any more, any more legitimate or closer to the, the gray zone of legitimacy that Monica is suggesting. But how, how do you guys think about this? Should we think of the violation of Article 2.4 as being somehow different in the context of Iraq versus Ukraine in, in a way that Monica thinks? Or should we be more formalistic and saying, no, it, it is a violation. And we should understand that violation in the context of Iraq served to weaken the Ussad Bowen regime in, in ways that are meaningful and perhaps uh, made this uh, action more possible. Ingrid, what do you think? I do think it's very helpful to think of international law in many situations as a, a language or a process of contestation or a series of negotiations or a, a process around norms. We obviously don't have a situation where you violate international law and the police come out and arrest you and put you in prison, right? That's just, that, that's not how it works. It's a decentralized enforcement system and it brings with it, I think, an, a real Im importance in how norms are contested and, and especially by really powerful states. So I have a lot of general sympathy for the idea that we pay a lot of attention to process. And I think we are all sort of doing that when we in this call, so when we talk about how are the justifications put out and, and how convincing are the analogies, you know, that said, I think it's um, really hard in, in Iraq, uh, on, honestly, there's some line between 
yeah, I'm using the process that I do, you know, I am from the U.S., I am an American, and I, I tend to think that a number of people involved in the decision to go forward in Iraq were, you know, well-meaning people working with bad information. But, you know, honestly, the justifications that were put forth almost make a mockery of the process. I'm sympathetic to the, to the process, but boy, when you look back, you know, trying to use the old Gulf War I resolutions, making it justified under UN Security Council to the really faulty factual information, it, it's hard to feel like that was a, a good process that adds much le legitimacy, honestly. And I, there's some point at which, you know, sort of being involved in a quote unquote process that seems so, like such a bad process. I, I don't know if you can distinguish much legally. I'll, I'll be curious what others thinks about that. Listen, the whole idea that you make an argument that we are invading Iraq to enforce the will of the Security Council and the Security Council is telling you, the majority of the Security Council is telling you, don't do it, right? And that somehow this is a plausible argument, right? It's plausible in a kind of formalistic technical way, but in terms of like the basic purpose of the United Nations Charter, which is to make, you know, decision-making the use of force collective. Like it's a complete non-starter, that argument. So the argument starts from the assumption that it's the unilateral right of the United States and its assorted allies to invade whoever they want. That's the bit to make whatever decision they want. And that's what's so wrong. That's why the global South finds, you know, has an allergy to that type of argument. But again, I don't, I also agree that we don't want to engage in false equivalencies. There is one important equivalency though here stated purpose of the Iraq war and what was done in the Iraq war and also in the Afghanistan war and in the Libyan conflict was regime change. And in Ukraine, that is the same thing. Russia wants to change the regime. Russia doesn't necessarily want to conquer Ukraine as such, at least not formally. Russia wants to change the regime. That's what the West wanted in Libya, abusing essentially a Security Council authorization to you know, take all necessary measures to protect civilians. That's what the West did with the Taliban in Afghanistan. That's what the West did in Iraq. And again, we can all say, okay, but those are really horrible bad guys. And Zelensky is a super lovely, democratically elected guy. And that's a huge difference, right? But again, we should not neglect that there is a point of equivalency also between these various. Yeah, I'm also sympathetic, sympathetic to the jurisprudential argument that Kiwi and others are making. But I think, I think they are also ready to concede that without any formalism, you know, so the problem is how do we distinguish between a legal argument and just diplomacy or power politics, right? So if context is everything, right, it's this ambiguous form in which there's a discussion going on. So, so what is legal about it, you know? And, and, and I think in the context of the use of force, this is uh, really important to, to think of the consequences of deformalizing law altogether. And I think, you know, even others will probably say, well, this is how the world works. We're just making a, you know, descriptive claim about how international law is. But if that is the case, we can't really, you know, make a normative distinction between uh, what's going on now in, in, in Iraq and other situations. Yeah, I'm, I'm really careful to make equivalencies or, or similarities between situations, but to play devil's advocate. I would also say that maybe we have to look also at the status of the victim state in terms of Iraq was in violation of Security Council resolutions, while Ukraine wasn't. Saddam Hussein regime was so and so atrocities that that was not the case in Ukraine. And again, I don't think this changes at all the fact that they were both egregious violations, but it opens a discussion about you know the, the measure of wrongfulness, and I'm. Not really making a clear cut case about this, but I'm saying, you know, this is the type of argument that can be had.
Yeah. And I do think it, it's important, again, just to circle back to the, the starting point of this part of the conversation, that the purpose of discussing the possible equivalency or the relationship is not a sort of a whataboutism to excuse in any way the current action or to diminish the, the illegality and the immorality of what is going on, but it is to inform the normative argument of how do we make the regime better? Like, is it important to acknowledge that these past violations have in some way weakened the regime in, in you know, important ways that we need to address going forward if we're going to make things any better? So I guess the, the next thing, and, and Marco, you brought up Libya, and the next sort of point of discussion, I think, in terms of thinking about how, if at all, do we make things better? Ingrid, you wrote an essay in Lawfare this last week, indicating that the focus on human rights and humanitarian issues within international law, and even within the context of Yusad Balam, in the context of creating an exception or arguing that there may possibly be an emerging exception for humanitarian intervention, has weakened or undermined the focus on stability and on international security. And that going forward, if we are to prevent these kinds of violations in the future, we need to get back to focusing primarily on stability and international peace and security as the, as the fundamentally important purposes of international law writ large and the UN system and use that bellum more specifically. So maybe you can take it away on that point. Sure. Thank you for the question. And, you know, so the basic argument, which extends well beyond the, the, the lawfare post is since Lou Hankin called sovereignty, the S word. There have been, you know, a, a large number of scholars who have viewed sovereignty and its focus on territorial integrity as in fundamental need of reshaping and reforming. And uh, you can see this through the work of scholars for whom I have a great deal of respect, like Anna Peters, you know, the alpha and omega of, of sovereignty is humanity and not territorial integrity and, and hard borders. And we, we see this in a variety of, of doctrines, including the right to remedial secession and humanitarian intervention, attacks on utipositis. These are all kind of doctrines in international law that are really geared toward keeping borders stable and secure and focusing on territorial in, in integrity. And in fact, the Kenyan ambassador to the UN made exactly this point about right. Ukraine. He said, look, you know, we accept a lot of unethical, I don't think he used the word immoral, but, you, you know, bad borders in Africa. These borders separate people who belong together, and yet we accept them as a price of peace. And that's, you know, the overarching point I'm making. I, I, I think that, you know, preserving territorial integrity, maintaining interstate peace, ideally, we would do that. And we would be able to use humanitarian intervention to discipline bad actors and allow valid secessionist movements to succeed. I, I, we all like to see these things happen, right? And to redraw some borders in Africa that don't separate peoples who belong together, right? I wish that international law was strong enough perhaps to do all of these things, but I don't really think that it is. And some of this is academic discourse. I'm, I'm not arguing that humanitarian intervention is already an entrenched legal norm, but they, you know, especially in the, the 90s and early 2000s, there were a, a lot of arguments advanced along these lines. So that I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but that's one piece of, of, of the argument that I don't think international law is strong enough to get all the borders right and drawn in a perfectly just way and maintain interstate peace and security. And I think we should use international law to focus on the latter. And just very quickly, I had Sam Moyne on the podcast in our last episode, looking at his new book, Humane, and his argument that sort of a focus on humanizing war 
has distracted us from the more important effort to constrain the resort to war. I'm just wondering how your argument sort of dovetails or overlaps with his, and do you have any thoughts on that? Do you sort of buy into to some of his argument as well, or do you see that as being quite distinct? I have sympathy for his argument. I do think our arguments are distinct. That is, my argument can be right even if his argument is wrong, and right. his argument can be right even if my argument is wrong. But it goes back to something that, that Marco wrote mean to pretend that he's going to associate himself with my position. But on, on remedial secession and the way that's been used by Russia, you know, he wrote, look, this is an example of a very progressive idea, remedial secession for deeply oppressed groups. It's a progressive ideal, but it's being used here for very anti-progressive ends. It's being used in effect as a fig leaf for territorial acquisition and territorial conquest. So I think they're similar in that way. I think the impulses behind these movements that the, the people who have embraced them are very well-meaning. They don't, mostly they don't embrace them as fig leaves. They believe this. And I think that's similar at a broader level to the point that one is making, right? These are all wonderful efforts to humanize war. That's that you understand the impulse as being terrific, but it doesn't always have the effect in the international legal system that you might want it to have. Okay. Marco, do you want to, were you embracing Ingrid's ar argument or are you going to repeat well, it? I embrace it wholeheartedly. <laughs> well, let me just, a slight qualification. So I don't think it's human rights law as such that somehow is in opposition to, to the law on the use of force here, but it is true that various kinds of human rights type arguments have been made that loosened the bounds of sovereignty, that loosened the, the prohibition of the use of force in the past few decades. Often, and, and this is the problem, often very inconsistently, often very instrumentally. You know, I, I so, so again, I'm coming to you from Belgrade. I, I was actually bummed, you know, when I was 19 for 77 days as part of this uh, humanitarian intervention, which was compared to, just to be clear, compared to what's going on in Ukraine, it was a walk in the park. You know, I don't know anyone who died anyone who knows anyone who died. It was still a fairly traumatic experience. But, you know, there were many worse humanitarian crises happening in the world then, before then, and after the Kosovo that, that you know, did not provoke a similar military reaction. And one reason why, again, there is resistance to the idea of humanitarian intervention from the Global South, in particular from the non-aligned movement, is that the doctrine is so open to abuse. Precisely when you see something like this happening with Russia now invoking the word genocide, to justify invading Ukraine. And, and that's the basic problem. You know, I always thought that the solution to the humanitarian intervention dilemma is fairly simple. You know, sometimes the law, which is a good law, which is a law about protecting, you know, sovereignty, protecting peace, leads to bad consequences. And sometimes good law might be broken to achieve even better ends. And if I was the US president and, and Rwanda was happening in 1993, right? And I could have stopped it. Would I have done it while breaking international law? Sure. You know, would saving 800,000 people be worth it? It would. But in 99.9% .9 of cases, you're not going to have that. You're going to have so much uncertainty that it's just impossible to create an exception that wouldn't just swallow up the rule. And that's why actually only two states, I think, the UK and Belgium, formally make humanitarian intervention. Ingrid, you want to jump back in before I, I let Eliab get in there? Uh, yeah, really quickly. Let me turn to the more controversial parts of my argument. So maybe we can get somebody, I can get Marco to just disagree with me. I, I also suggest that, you know, we have thousands and thousands of international human rights norms, many of which are routinely violated from reporting requirements to various 
rights to health and education and environment. And I simply question even some of these, you know, the right to be free from torture. These are wonderful norms and we, we need to enforce them. That's a use cogent norm that is widely violated around the world. And I, I just, and I, one of the questions I throw out is whether we do any harm to international law as a whole by having a whole bunch of things that we describe as core human rights norms. And yet they're violated all the time. You know, is that a problem for international law generally? You know, I have some reasons to think to think that it that it might be. So that's another piece. And, and human rights law has also reduced the, the the consent basis of international law through use cogens and a variety of other norms that you know can be applied with pretty loose sense of consent. And so I, I wonder whether those have any kind of weakening effect. And I think that's much more controversial than what I've said before. And now I will uh, let others join in. So just before I let both Marco and Yulia disagree with you. I, I just want to, so what, what is the, I guess, what is the conclusion? Where does that argument take us? Are you basically suggesting we should, you know, that this weakening of norms in human rights law sort of contaminates the normative power of use ad bellum? And, and so what is the consequence of that? We should do away with human rights? Or where, where do we go um, with this? Yeah, I call it, there's some great social science literature on this. I call it a broken window theory right. where, you know, a lot of violations of law, even ones that seem minor, right, can actually weaken the sense in which people perceive the norms in question as legal norms. So, you know, my own view is, yes, yeah, there's a reason to think this actually really is a problem. You know, two, two responses. Human rights can be, and I believe should be pursued to a very large degree in the first instance through domestic legal systems. And that's not going to say that it's, that's perfect, but, you know, your fundamental um, right to speech and, you know, right to healthcare, right to an education, civil and political rights, you know, these can be promoted globally by really investing in, you know, domestic structures and domestic protections for those rights. And I, I'm not going to say international law has no place, but, you know, in terms of what we think about the UN Security Council doing, I think there's a push toward the more human rights the UN Security Council does, the better, right? The more times the UN Security Council has a hearing on human rights, the better. And I'm, I just question whether we want to use the UN Security Council in that way. And, and part of it is throwing out more questions than specific answers. I don't mean every time the Security Council mentions human rights that something bad happens, but, you know, we've shifted in, in, in how we think these um, international institutions are used. And I, I just question whether they're becoming overstretched, whether, you know, human rights leads to a lot of polarization. And look at the map of the UN General Assembly vote on the Ukraine, war in Ukraine. Well, it looks great if you just look at the countries that joined with Russia, but look at the abstentions. You know, a, a large part of the globe lives in countries that abstained from condemning Russia. And that that might be just a, an article two four thing. But you know, I think somewhat through human rights, we've we come to see the world in very polarized terms. In human rights, your friend countries show up to condemn your enemy countries' human rights violations. There's a certain kind of polarization there that I think is not healthy for the, the system as a whole. And now I've surely said enough that's grossly controversial that I can just <laughs> turn it over over to my fellow panelists. So Ilya, you of course have written a lot about the relationship between human rights and you said Bellum, and I've argued that there's a, a fairly intimate relationship. So I invite you to disagree. Yeah, I want to maybe stick to Ingrid's argument. And I, I think, you know, I want to stress what Ingrid also conceived, conceded a, a minute ago that, you know, actually all of these human rights doctrines that Putin invoked are really far from consensus, you know, under international law. So humanitarian, unilateral humanitarian prevention, there's not a consensus, but it's widely accepted that it's unlawful. 
the legality of the media of secession is far from clear, and particularly in, in cases like this, when, when, when there was no security council involvement, no nothing, right? And also that's not a human rights argument, but the doctrine of preventative self-defense advance here is not accepted by anyone since Bush, may, maybe Israel to, to an extent. So this is something to remember. So, you know, we, it's hard to put, you know, the fault of what's happening now on, you know, increasing human rightsization of international law when most of these doctrines are far from accepted. And maybe going back to the core of Ingrid's argument, so, you know, we have to, you know, consider also the costs, right? So if we focus more on territorial integrity and pure sovereignty, we can make it much harder to make interventionist claims, but we can make it much easier to justify internal atrocities, right? So how do we make these, uh, this balance? And also, this is also something that we have to reckon with. I think, you know, states that want to abuse human rights concepts to promote intervention will find a way also to abuse territorial integrity, right? So, you know, this is precisely what Putin is doing to an extent. He says, well, this idea of territorial integrity is, you know, it's arbitrary, it's nonsense. So Khrushchev shifted the borders or, you know, everything here is invented, right? So, 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 so we might give up the benefits of kind of a human rights sensation and the discourse we're not gaining you know, too much from shifting the, the, the discussion. Yeah, just a point because Craig mentioned, you know, my, my writing about the relation between use of bellum and human rights. I think if we erase human rights from the concept of use of bellum, so we have a very impoverished view of the wrongfulness of the violation of the use of force. It becomes this violation against an abstract body, a sovereign body. And Tom Dannenbaum wrote amazing scholarship about this. And we lose focus that we're killing innocent people and we can't have this if we push human rights law or human rights thinking out of Yusabellum. Interesting. I, I will, well, let me just very briefly say, I agree with all of that has been said. I would just note that what we have here is a classic sort of apology versus utopia type tension, you know? So to an extent, Ingrid is saying all this human rightsy stuff is simply not a good fit with the world we live in today. The world we live in today is a darker place. And it needs a more modest law that will achieve better ends, right? The, the results will be more lives saved, you know, more misery sort of prevented. That I think is sort of the, where, where I see Ingrid's argument making a point. And really the truth of that argument will depend, in fact, on what kind of world we will live in. If you live in a world with more and more autocracies, more and more powerful autocracies that do not really care about human rights, an ascendancy of China, ascendancy of autocracy, not just in Russia, but in India and so on, you know. If that's the kind of world we will live in increasingly, then, you know, a greater emphasis on human rights looks and more and more utopian. If, however, that kind of growth of, of, of authoritarianism sort of reverses itself somehow, I don't know how, then maybe, you know, we should continue the sort of nice stuff we were doing in the 1990s. So, but it's sort of out of our hands in a sense. Ilya, have you wanted to get back in? Yeah, so, so we have, you know, this gross uh, aggression by Russia now, but we can't forget, you know, we have to step back. The, the vast majority of conflicts and atrocities are still within states' borders, right? So, so, so this is something we can't forget before, you know, we say, well, we now live in a world in which territorial integrity is, is violated. That's true, but, you know, we still have this reality. And in the sense, you know, I have sympathy, Mark, with your argument, and I think I, I try to be far from utopian, but... So, so let me, you know, go back to, you know, the apology aspect, right? And the states that are likely to completely disregard human rights, you know, in their conduct, 
will also find ways to disregard territorial integrity. And I think, you know, what happens now with Russia and Ukraine also, you know, shows us the, 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 the way which you can undermine also that norm, right? So, so I'm not sure that we're going to gain too much from saying, well, because these states are like this, you know, we should give up on that. I, I don't disagree necessarily. I would just say that not every rule is equally capable of being abused. Some rules can be so open-ended that it's much easier to abuse them. And, you know, if you want to look at sort of a state that is being hypocritical in emphasizing sovereignty, territorial integrity, and it is not doing what it should be doing on that front, that's China today, right? So it's China that talks so much about, you know, the availability of territorial integrity sovereignty, yet it is not criticizing Russia for what is a manifest violation of the rule. But a rule such as the unilateral humanitarian intervention rule or many other such examples, it's much more easily abused. Just to clarify, sorry, I'm taking too much time. I'm not saying that humanitarian intervention, unilateral humanitarian intervention should be lawful. I'm saying that, you know, that we're talking more broadly of refocusing what international law does to emphasis of territorial integrity and sovereignty. So, so, so that's my point. That's where we might lose something. I just wanted, first of all, to say my, my argument is really about binding global human rights norms. And so just to kind of back to like, you know, how would we protect human rights norms if, you know, we, we go in grades route? I'm not saying anything about regional human rights organizations. I'm not saying anything about soft. Um, and, and like the U UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights has had tremendous force in being incorporated into many states' constitutions. I just, there's just many, I just want to just sort of reemphasize the, the multiplicity of ways that we can try to advance human rights without having to make, you know, every single human right a global violation of customary international law that's, you know, almost on par with 2-4 or whatever, you know, so I, I really, I do think human rights work is incredibly important. And I do think there's many places to do it in the international legal system. I just question how many of these norms, you know, need to be characterized as global binding customary international legal norms. But I think both of you are absolutely right. You know, a lot of this just depends on what we can do as a world community. And I would love it if it was a world of democracies and we can re we can redraw all those borders in Africa and we could get allow people to be grouped with people they belong with. That, that would be a much more perfect world. You know, I, I guess, God, you, you look up the buildup of World War One. And, you know, and it, it is a relative balance of what are we trying to do here? And this just goes back to your wonderful point, Eliav, about the human costs of war and how we think about that in the international system. And do we think about that by making the system more about human rights? You know, maybe, but you're absolutely right. That's what we should be focused on. But the buildup, to me, the buildup to World War One makes me think we should be super focused on you know, territorial and, and integrity and keeping those norms in place. Let me make just one very quick point that, that illustrates the sort of normative power of human rights in the world today. I just read an article in The Atlantic, an interview with uh, His Royal Highness Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, the first interview that he gave in, in I don't know how many years since the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, where uh, in response to the journalist prodding him about the murder of Khashoggi, MBS sort of says that his feelings really got hurt by this accusation and that he felt that his human rights were violated, in particular, his right to be presumed innocent under Article 11 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. His words, not mine. So that tells you that human rights have a place in the world. Okay, well, I want to actually circle back to Ingrid's point about the buildup to World War I, because I want to sort of zoom out a little bit and, and start talking about the collective security system, not just the U.S. Obama regime itself. 
And you know, it'll be recalled that the UN system was in broad terms designed to establish uh, a better collective security system to replace the failed system of the League of Nations and that the collective self-defense clause of Article 51 was supposed to complement the system envisioned by the UN Security Council authority to enforce collective security. And the underlying rationale, as I understand it, or as Joram Dinstein has, has uh, I think, made famous, that aggression is like a contagion uh, and collective security is necessary to snuff it out, to nip it in the bud before it spreads. You know, again, sort of evoking the idea of Munich. And in one sense, we're witnessing a complete failure of that system. We are, are witnessing, you know, a, a world power just pummeling and crushing a country just yesterday, President Zelensky condemned the failure of NATO to impose no-fly zones, but Secretary of State Blinken again confirmed that the U.S. and NATO would not take action that would bring it into direct conflict with Russian forces. So we are not seeing any exercise of collective self-defense. Of course, collective security authorized by the U.N. Security Council is made impossible by the Russian veto. So how should we understand this? How should we interpret you know, these events? Is this anomalous or is this the final nadir of a system that has been in decline and doomed from its inception by giving the veto to the P5. Where does the collective security system go from here? Marco, do you want to lead off? I suppose there's the collective security system, but then there's the separate issue of collective self-defense. Maybe just let me pause you there. I guess this is a part of the question, though. I always understood that collective self-defense was actually part of the architecture of collective security envisioned by the UN system. In, yes and no. Yes, in a sense that sort of, you know, you would expect, like has, has happened in Kuwait, the world could come to the aid of the victim of aggression. But on the other hand, no, because you can resort to collective self-defense even if the collective security system is blocked, even if there's no Security Council action. Legally, there is no barrier to any Western state assisting Ukraine now. Right. There's no barrier. The barrier is the fact that Russia is threatening to use nuclear weapons and that the risk that this will escalate to nuclear war. And that's our big problem. Our problem is not so much the veto. Our problem is mutual annihilation right. as a sort of a very real outcome of something like this. But what I guess the point I'm trying to get at is, so, and maybe it's, we have different understandings of the UN system, but I understood the collective self-defense concept in Article 51. And it, it specifically says that until such time as the UN Security Council steps in, but the idea was that collective self-defense was a component of the collective security system, that this was going to operate to help make a more secure international system, that states would collectively step in to nip aggression in the bud. And this is the failure that we're seeing right now. So yes, the, the UN Security Council is out because this act of aggression is being engaged in by a P5 member with a veto, but we're also seeing the collective self-defense aspect fail for all the reasons that you just provided, but where does that leave us with respect to a collective security system, right? We're basically seeing now the, the naked emergence of what some would have maybe argue has always been there, which is P5 members or great powers can engage in acts of aggression with impunity. Well, but no, because they can't do it with impunity. They, they get punished. They could look at the punishment that Russia is suffering now. It's an enormous punishment. It is being ostracized. It is suffering enormous economic harm. The, the U.S. suffered quite a lot of punishment diplomatically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, reputationally from what it did in Iraq and other sorts of places. So it, it, it's true that what will not happen is a military action 
But again, the reason why there is no military response against Russia is not because the collective security system has failed, even though, of course, it has failed. It's because the alternative is so horrible, right? It right. is the possible end of humankind at the button of a crazy person. And then that's a real possibility, right? So that that's why it's the case. By the way, it could be, I'm, I'm, I really not have a 100%, I'm not 100% sure about this, but if you look at all the export of weapons by Western states into Ukraine, some of it might actually be conceptualized as a form of collective self-defense, potentially. It's not armed uh, directly, but uh, maybe it is a form of collective self-defense. So yeah, we'll, let's, we'll circle back to this co-belligerency issue and whether Western states are running the risk of, of being seen as co-belligerents by virtue of supply. But Ilya, let, let me get to you on the, the initial question. Yeah, returning to, to, to your question, I think, you know, it's a valid question whether the UN Security Council is a true collective security system. And I think international relations scholars would say no, absolutely no, because of the veto power and other subjective and objective elements. And I think, you know, I saw on Twitter a scholar, uh, as uh, Tamsin Page, I hope I, I pronounced the name uh, correctly. So she said that it's not a failure because it wasn't designed to begin with to counter aggression by P5 members. So it's not a failure. Right. So, so this is something that we have to look at, but I, I do want to point out, you know, and those on Marco's point that the inadequacy or shortcomings of the security council should not be the end of the discussion. So we are seeing an unprecedented response. And what's important is that I think maybe more than before, it's almost all portrayed as a response to a violation of international law by Russia. So we're seeing a massive response, which is made up, you know, on legal terms and not on moral security, political terms. So this is something to, to note. And as to your point about collective security, I think uh, it's really interesting to ask nowadays, you know, whether, what are the obligations of third party states regarding violations of the norm against aggression? Because there are, you know, valid claims that it's a peremptory norm of international law. So there are obligations to cooperate and bring it to an end. Right, General Common 36 of the Human Rights uh, Committee says all states have a responsibility to oppose uh, aggression, whatever that means. Right, and we have now a call by the Ukrainian Association of International Law, you know, that says, well, this is an ergo onus violation. I think peremptory uh, norm is a more uh, uh, precise uh, term. So you have to come and help us. And, and this is also something we have to grapple with. Are there any obligations, not only a right, but an obligation to somehow act to counter aggression? I think your question about collective security systems and international law is really important and and fascinating. You know, when we think about that, there's been a focus and, you know, rightfully on the UN Charter and the UN system. There's a focus by Ona Hathaway and Scott Shapiro on the Paris Peace Accords, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, and sort of 1928 as being this transformative moment and the, you know, founding of the UN as being this other transformative moment that have then led to this kind of long piece, this long post-World War II piece. You know, Marco mentions nuclear weapons, and I think a lot of IR theorists think that, you know, the long piece has, like, nothing to do with international law or the UN. It just has to do with the fear of nuclear weapons, and that's the only thing that's been keeping us out of World War III, you know, since the late 19, 1940s. I just want to add to that, when you look at collective security historically, it is fascinating the extent to which the concert of Europe seemed effective 
following the Vienna, you know, the following the Napoleonic Wars and the Congress of Vienna, we had a remarkably sort of stable and peaceful Europe. And there's a lot that could be said for that. Was Europe stable and peaceful because they were so busy exploiting other parts of the globe um, in terms? No, I mean, literally in colonialism. Mm -hmm. so, so I don't want to over, I don't want to overstate the point, but if, it, you know, we tend to think that we live in this period of long peace that has to have something to do with the UN Charter and um, the United Nations. It's interesting to think about the collective security system put in place that, you know, was the concert of, of Europe, which was, and, and there have actually been some calls to sort of revive something like that. And I think that's really interesting, a much more informal place that great powers, you know, get together and have a very different interaction, set of interactions than you might see in the, the highly stylized and highly formal UN Security Council. So those are just some ideas about how to create collective security, you know, in an increasingly multipolar world, but one that has some very powerful players who are going to, who are going to continue to be really important. Which sort of brings it back to the build up to World War One and the, the end of that long piece. Exactly. So I, I take it then that nobody has the, the Nobel Peace Prize winning answer to how to restructure the UN Security Council in a way that fixes this problem? Or, or do we see any strengthening of the United for Peace resolution coming out of this week's uh, resolution in, in the General Assembly? Or are we just doomed? What's the American expression? Putting a Band-Aid on a bleeding, separating wound? Maybe <laughs> something like that. I don't think there's anything like that tinkering with the institutional machinery of the UN even if it was possible, and it's really not, right? Even if you could somehow do it, if you don't change the underlying fundamentals, you're not going to make this world a better place. So what needs to happen is for countries like Russia, but all other countries, right, to internally reform to some extent, so to make, you know, peace and human rights, et cetera, et cetera, all those values easier to protect. That's, that's what it is. So what's going on in Ukraine now is a product of a long process that lasted decades, you know, of what Putin has been doing in Russia and not just him, but the, the corrupt elite supporting him. So we should not neglect that as the sort of root of the problem. I think Russia may have, and Putin might have misjudged the economic response to the invasion, which suggests, you know, imagine we had a collective security system in which, you know, five or 10 global leaders got together each year and just talked in some media blackout space. You're asking here for Nobel level, you know, this guy, right. I, I realize there's problems <laughs> with this, but it is a problem that, and it, and it's a problem that worked to the incredible disadvantage of the Ukrainian people that Putin did not adequately understand what the reaction to this was going to be. Like that's a real information failure that could have been cured in this sense, right? He, he did not accurately predict the response and had he accurately predicted it, he might have acted in a way that was much better for the world. So that's good information cost and it's, it's too bad, right? I mean, there's, there's one set of things that we can't deter because we just don't care enough or we don't have the power to do it. This suggests that the deterrent power was there and might have changed his actions had he understood it. And that really does, I think, speak. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe he would have invaded Ukraine anywhere. I can't play out all this, but a lot of people think he misjudged, especially the central bank sanctions. That's, a, that's information that would have been, and you know, Biden was saying, we're going to sanction you. You never could imagine. You know, I just wonder if they'd been in a room together a month ago where Biden was like, no, like we're talking the central bank stuff. We're talking about freezing your currency reserves all across the world. I, I just wonder, maybe there is a place for a better collective security, less formal, you know, much less transparent, which of course goes against all those democratic values we have, right? But I, I don't know. 
No, I think that's really interesting. I, I was just listening to the Ezra Klein podcast episode with Adam Tooze talking about the economic sanctions. And it's actually, it's fascinating. It's done in two parts. The first part was done on Friday before the, the shoe dropped on some of the sanctions. And then the, the last part is, was recorded on Monday of this week. And Adam Tooze suggests that the central bank sanctions were never in anybody's you know, rear view mirror. Like that had never been discussed, apparently. And that's, you know, as you, you point out, the fact that wasn't discussed means that it perhaps was not part of the Russian calculus. And maybe if it had been discussed and put on the table, you know, now two says it was sort of like talking about nuclear war. There's a lot of risks involved in, in invoking the sort of economic nuclear option. And yet you sort of wonder if it might have altered the calculus if it had been raised like a month ago. But Ilya, did you want to, to get in on this? You, you have the Nobel Prize winning question? Yeah, because it reminds me, you know, discussions of, you know, 30 or 25 years ago among American liberal internationalists about, you know, the Security Council is broken, so we need a league of democracies, which will operate outside of the, the, the council and will make decisions. But, but I think we, we all understand that it's nonsense because if this happens, so then, you know, you have, you know, regional organizations of authoritarian states, you know, making up their own league of, I don't know what, self-defense. So. And I think it's clear to us that we're not going to see a meaningful reform of the Security Council in the foreseeable future. I, I think maybe maybe the General Assembly, if international law to a large extent is about legitimacy and authority and projecting authority, right? So actually strong resolutions in the General Assembly do a lot of work, you know, that the Security Council might do. There's already perhaps legal basis to provide weapons, of course, also for collective self-defense, right? So what, what do we need the Security Council for? for imposing universal sanctions, well, you know, maybe resolutions through the General Assembly can also make a clear case that states should start imposing sanctions, and maybe that could push other states to do so. No, so, so, so I don't think there's, there are prospects for serious reform of the Security Council, and, and maybe the General Assembly is a better way to go. And on the flip side, I wonder if wrong lessons or bad lessons or, or lessons that are counterproductive to international peace and security and perhaps to international law are being drawn from this conflict, right? So the former prime minister of Japan this week mooted the idea of Japan sharing or, or allowing U.S. nuclear weapons to be placed in Japan. Germany just doubled its defense budget in, in, in the space of a week. And Sweden, is, a neutral country, is providing weapons in an international armed conflict for the first time. So we're seeing all of these seismic shifts and when you think about the lessons being drawn for purposes of nuclear non-proliferation, after Libya, we're, we're seeing a second country that abandoned, not in Ukraine's case, gave up nuclear weapons. In Libya's case, sort of abandoned a nuclear program. And both of those countries have suffered violence as a result. And you can imagine a, a lot of countries drawing the conclusion that you can imagine Iran sitting at home right now going, yeah, giving up nuclear weapon programs is not necessarily a good idea. Yeah, I, I want to say that, you know, I'm really worried you now about what we can describe it as this type of erosion of the nuclear taboo that is pushing forward, right? So he's making the unthinkable thinkable. And I just want to point out that, you know, very interesting uh, article just published by Yanina Dale and others that empirically tests what people think about nuclear weapons. And actually, more people than we would like to believe might justify using nuclear weapons. So once you have a figure like Putin, you know, putting that out there, it could be an erosion of this, you know, it's unthinkable, you know, some people might think, well, in some cases, we have to use nuclear weapons, but they're not even, they don't dare raise this possibility. 
once it's out there, it becomes less of a, a, of a taboo. And this is very worrying, I think, for the prospects of non-proliferation or non-use of nuclear weapons. Yeah, I completely agree. Unfortunately, there's simply no way to sort of, you know, predict where this will go. So there are some paths out of this crisis that lead to a better world, to a more optimistic scenario. But there are many, many paths out of the current crisis that lead to a are really some horrible things unfolding and nuclear proliferation and even potentially a use of nuclear weapons is something that is definitely on the table, unfortunately. And, and that's just how it is. That's the world we live in today. Ingrid, hopefully you have a more optimistic view. The data from political science tells us that when states have disputes, they can have disputes about many things, economic policy, trade, the kinds of disputes that lead from militarized disputes to full-scale war are disputes over territory. And it's interesting to think why, you know, there's some theories it's easier to sell a war about territory to your population and you need the support of your population, whether you're a democracy or a dictator. Craig, that does not put us in the, the good news category. That was not turning to be for some hope. That's turning to be toward, you know, this is dangerous. This is very dangerous. And we started talking about nuclear weapons and co-belligerents and no fly zones. I, you know, I just think that the West should be very careful here for a, a, a lot of reasons. So no, I don't have much uh, optimism here. And, and Mark is right. This could lead in many, maybe this leads to a better, but maybe that maybe this will lead to some better future in which we all respect these norms. And I, I hope so. I absolutely hope so. Learn to live with the stress and uncertainty. That's where we are. Permanent angst, which uh, us people in Serbia and, and Eliev's crowd in Israel, Palestine, uh, we know something about you know, it's over very no. so there you go welcome now, I, if i want if can i can make some you know half optimistic argument here i think a lot has to do with what will happen with these sanctions if russia wins the war and these sanctions gradually fade away and the world forgets about it then can we can really start talking about you know a nail in the coffin of, of the, the, the international law and legal order. You know, Russia might win, and if the sa sanctions continue going on and on, you know, so law may be failed in changing its behavior in the short term, but still it carries out some of its, some of its social function, right, by imposing some costs on, on wrongdoing. We can't possibly know how this will unfold in the future. So maybe just to, to wrap up, and I'm mindful of, of your time, but just maybe to circle back to where we started with, past violations and thinking about how to improve or to reform and restore the Zedbellum regime and the collective security system going forward. What are the role of lawyers and legal academics? So we talked about, Ingrid mentioned sort of well-meaning lawyers who were nonetheless involved in developing rather implausible legal justifications for the invasion of Iraq. Where should we be or how should we be thinking about our own role as scholars, as lawyers in trying to restore and reform the Ustad Bellin regime going forward? Ingrid, maybe I can start with you. Uh, I think that's a great question. And, you know, I, I think about it sometimes, you know, there's been a movement in law and economics, of course, for generations now, in which we just assume everyone is a rational, self-interested actor out to acquire as many economic goods for themselves as possible. And this description of human nature tends to make can often make one feel like a sucker. Whoa, I'm not really like that, but I guess I'm the only one because we assume that all actors behave that way. And I, you know, I'm both pessimistic about the international legal system, but I, I'm also, I think it's um, really important 
for us to voice a lot of optimism and enthusiasm for the ways that international law has been strong and been and been successful and for the things that it can continue to do in the future. And people look to us for the messages that we put out. And as sort of pessimistic as I am about, you know, a lot of events globally, I continue to remain incredibly optimistic about international law and international institutions. And I think it's important that we, both for our, our communities and ourselves, but also for the world at large, that we voice some of that confidence and enthusiasm because gosh, if we don't, you know, if we don't do that, I'm, I'm not sure who else will. I don't know how helpful that will ultimately be, but I, I think it's I think it's important. International law is incredible. It's a magnificent achievement. It's an achievement that, that you know, has incredible benefits for the world and has kept the world, I think, safe and secure in some important ways. And I, I think we need to um, acknowledge that even as we try to figure out how to do better. So what Ingrid said, all of that, and I would just add one point. If you look at people in Russia today who are protesting for peace on the streets of Moscow, knowing they will get arrested, you sometimes understand that even in the face of near certain defeat, fighting the good fight is the right thing to do. And we're nowhere near, thankfully, that position, right? So the situation is bad, but it is not, I would say, desperately bad for the international legal order. So we do what we can. We need, we need to fight the good fight to reassert the values of that order. One thing we need to do is for people who work in Western societies, Western legal departments of Western states, universities in Western states who take a long, hard look at what their states have done to erode the international legal system, coupled with all the good things they've done to improve it. So if we don't take that long, hard look, we will suffer the consequences of doing so. We will reap what we have sown. Here we have. Yeah, I agree with everything that has been said. I think, you know, as a teacher, you know, one of my challenges is when students say, well, you know, nuclear superpowers can do whatever they want. So at least, if not more, you know, we can say at this point, I think what happens now puts to rest at least that argument, you know, that international law can never be enforced in any way against nuclear superpowers such as Russia. But of course, whether this would be effective is something that we can't uh, prophesize right now. Right. Well, that's a much more optimistic note to end on. But before I let you go, I was going to ask you all just to, to recommend just one reading that you think somehow relevant to what we've been talking about that you think, you know, maybe has not been on everybody's radar. I guess I would encourage people to look and think hard about, about sanctions. You know, that's not quite what you're looking for, a, a specific piece. But, you know, I, I think the sanctions, the economic sanctions piece of this at the moment, at least seems incredibly important. And, we, you know, we haven't really talked about the central bank sanctions are, in a sense, designed to punish. They are set up in a way that are not a specialized or targeted sanction. They are a sanction that may well, if this drags on, really work to the detriment of the Russian people. We've seen sanctions in Venezuela. We've seen sanctions in Iran. They have not been successful in creating regime change or the changes that the West wanted. However, this conflict unfolds, I think sanctions are going to be more and more, including central bank sanctions. When do we freeze currency reserves? You know, what is the position of international law with respect to freezing currency reserves? I don't think that violates sovereign immunity, but I, I think more, more attention and more thought on these for those of us, especially who can't stomach thinking about nuclear weapons, you could do some reading on economic sanctions. Yeah, and there's actually a, a recent book called The Economic Weapon by Nicholas Mulder, which is getting a lot of attention at the history of the early development of economic sanctions. Yeah, in terms of specifically use of force, I, I don't want to imply that it hasn't received the attention, but I think it's relevant. 
you really go back, you know, to, to edit the volume by Tom Ruiz, Olivier Cotain, and Alexander Hoffer. The use of force with international law, a case-based approach in 2018. And I think it really helps to contextualize this, this use of force and identify continuities and changes across uh, the years. And this could be a really good place to start to analyze this from a legal perspective. Yeah. And, and I think Mary Ellen O'Connell actually has a chapter in that book on the use of force uh, in 2014 against Ukraine and in the Donbass, which was, is really quite interesting to read in light of what's going on right now. I, I am gonna, I'm not going to be terribly creative. I will just say, I mean, people should follow the continuing coverage of everything that's going on, on, in, in, on in international law blogs, especially those articles that are written by scholars from Eastern Europe or otherwise not say, you know, attract an enormous amount of attention because they come from leading institutions and that type of thing. And I would just maybe recommend rewatching Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Something that everybody should watch. Well, listen, thank you all so much for making time for this on, on such short notice. This has been really fascinating. I think the listeners will get a great deal out of this. We will perhaps have to reconvene somewhere down the road and see if some more optimism might be warranted. But thank you very much again and take care. Be safe. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for your great work, Craig. It's really a service to the community, the podcast that you edit. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. So nice to see you. Nice to see you. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you for listening to this special episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations today on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students about it. Also, as I mentioned at the outset, there is now a PayPal button on the website for those who might like to donate a small amount to help with the cost of editing, which I will say, do start to add up. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at JibJabPodcast for updates on the coming episodes and other commentary. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next episode, stay safe.